Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on February the 10th, 2012. For newcomers, look into the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com and it should help you to put the pieces together. Uh, they comprise this big picture of the new world order as we think it's called. It's always, it's always a new world order because there's always a new world. Uh, in different parts of them, two different stages of the New World Order coming into view all the time. Some have passed, others have slowly come, and once that's done, there's another New World Order. And of course, they'll declare that when they have uh, everything signed together through the World Trade Organization and the United Nations, when eventually you'll actually see uh, an actual building that is the New World Order, the new global government, obviously. So we're living through a planned society, a plan, planned stages of this big society to going back a hundred years or more, uh, where they, they first started to publish their goals. And these were begun by big international banking boys who formed their clubs and who, who eventually took the name of the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations. They also have the Trilateral Commission as well, but, and many, many others. But the fact is uh, they plan to take over the world's resources and uh, amalgamate countries together into a unified Europe, exactly the same as Karl Marx talked about in the 1800s, uh, a unified Americas, and in a far eastern uh, rim eventually. Uh, the European Union would extend way beyond Europe uh, ultimately to encompass, they hope, eventually even China. So it's quite interesting to see how, how, how they're, going, they're going at it. They've already got Russia into a good part of it, and they're just going along uh, at quite the speed. So it's all done above our heads. It's, about, it's done supranationally. So it's, we've got no say in the matter at all. The politicians never mention any of these things when they run for election. And, of course, the public are quite content, it seems, to have the politicians just do these things. And we're trained, of course, that it's none of our business, really. Leave it to the experts. And all the trouble we're going through today is to do with the, the fallout, the, the necessary fallout, they call it, uh, of the, the catastrophes, you know, homelessness, losing your homes, all this kind of thing, uh, sharing your wealth across the world, obviously means deprivation back home, things like that. That just has to be that way, they say, to bring in this world order. So it's, it's much different society and system than the one you're taught and trained about at school when you get dates and battles and famous generals and all that nonsense. That's all it is, truly, it's nonsense. That's not history. The boys who got the history went to special uh, universities, the Ivy League universities, and they had access to incredible libraries, the likes of which the red brick universities never, ever had access to at all. Anyway, all of this stuff is explained at cuttingtruthematrix.com, hundreds and hundreds of audios for free download. And uh, remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you. You can help me uh, keep just ticking along here by buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughmates.com. Remember all those sites listed there too, the official sites, they have transcripts for print up as well. I've got the talks and go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu for transcripts in other languages. To order from the US to Canada, you can use a personal check 
or an international postal money order, or you can send cash, and some people use PayPal as well. Across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. But what I do, as I say, is chronicle the events. I give you basically what's coming, because I've read the reports in advance for years of what's coming. They've actually published this whole agenda for over 100 years in various books. And... Um, it's not hard to, to figure out when you've read them all and all the different parts that have to, to come into place, fall into place to make it all happen. And then they announce it suddenly in the media as though it's just an, a whim of the moment sort of thing. Uh, as you realize this is a long-term agenda and you are living through it. The future is planned. So is the past for your parents and grandparents as well. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back in Cutting Through the Matrix. You know, as I said, we, we, we grew up in this system uh, given the base, most basic education, if, if you want to call it education at all. And it's not, uh, it's not left up to individual schools what to teach. You have a, and not even up to the nation for that matter too. Everything really, all curriculums come down ultimately from the United Nations. Everything's standardized in this system. Sometimes we'll tweak it a bit here and I'll tweak it a bit there for different countries, cultures, but basically it's all the same stuff we're being taught because we're all prepared generation by generation to get ready for a global uh, governance system. And uh, uh, everyone gets taught the same propaganda because that's what education really is, propaganda, indoctrination. And as Jack Silal says, it's most important to get this basic education to allow subsequent propaganda to take effectively on you. Now, this the article came out the other day too, or a few days ago. It says, the Internet has become the most significant vehicle in promoting extremism, according to a report released by the Home Affairs Committee. That's like the government of Britain, basically, Home Affairs Committee. The report says the Internet has become a fertile breeding ground for terror and is more involved in radicalization than prisons, universities, or places of worship. This is all to do with censorship, of course. Members of Parliament spoke to uh, radical cleric Abu Hamza, who said British foreign policy was a key factor in pushing young Muslims to radicalization. And it's true, you know, the whole Middle East and all these countries over there, um, They've never had peace for over a hundred years, well over a hundred years, almost two hundred years by, by Britain especially, um, uh, having wars with them, taking them over, running them for a while, putting front men and their own guys in, in charge to get all the oil out, and, and then overthrows come, and then the British aren't too happy about it, and you have wars that go on again until they're, they're down on their knees once more. And that's what we're seeing back and forth all the time with that whole area. And of course you radicalize Muslims because here's people from uh, way across the sea coming over to bomb you all the time. That kind of radicalizes those who are left who see their own folks getting blown up. Even the MI6 admitted that at the beginning in 9-11 says if we put out all these fake uh, uh, um, extremist sites to attract Muslims into them in Britain, to find out who might be attracted into it, and and see, and they were actually setting up these sites, just like the CIA does, and, and Canada's done it too, and admitted that they did it. Uh, then, of course, you're going to radicalize uh, certain folk who are not too happy about it. So now it says here, the committee's report said internet service providers should be more active in monitoring sites they host 
and that government should work with them to develop a code of practice. Now, here's your code, all your laws. They can't say this, they can't say that, etc., etc., etc. That's what it's all about, censorship. A nine-month inquiry found the Internet was now one of the few unregulated spaces where radicalization is able to take place. But it added that a sense of grievance is key and direct personal contact with radicals a significant factor. The government's counter-terrorism strategy should show that the British state is not antithetical to Islam, the committee said, even though they've often said Islam's a problem. It says Keith Vaz, its chairman, said the conviction last week of four men from London and Cardiff radicalized over the internet for a plot to bomb the London Stock Exchange and launch a Mumbai-style atrocity on the streets of London shows that we cannot let our vigilance slip. More resources need to be directed to these threats and to preventing radicalization through the internet and in private spaces. These are the fertile breeding grounds for terrorism. I think really the fertile breeding grounds are governments. If they stop going and blowing up other countries, don't they be getting radicalized? You know, it's obvious, isn't it? A Home Office spokesman said uh, prevent the counter-radicalization strategy is an, it's what they call it as prevent, uh, is an integral part of our counter-terrorism strategy and aims to stop people from becoming terrorists or supporting terrorism. The new prevent strategy challenges extremist ideology, helps protect institutions from extremists, and tackles the radicalization of vulnerable people. Above all, it takes uh, it tackles the threat from homegrown terrorism on and offline. So they're working with the police and internet service providers to take internet hate off the web. Now, what's hate? You, you, can, you can you can expand hate into anything you want, and they will, of course, they will. They're already talking about anti-government groups, anti-government. And, of course, that would mean that if you could criticize anything about government, you're anti-government. That's how they did it in the Soviet Union. That's where the term came from, anti-government. They used that. And uh, that would mean that the opposition party is really anti-government, obviously, since they're always criticizing their policies. So things are going ahead the way it's supposed to go because eventually they always wanted to do this and censor the Internet, and that's what they're doing. Now... Again, getting back to the big foundations that really run the world along with the big corporations and uh, the massive banking systems that they have. Uh, They all work together, of course, uh, and actually they all belong to the same one group, ultimately. It says trust. They call it a trust instead of a foundation. It's the same thing. Calls for a new code of conduct for journalists, you see. Uh, a new report published today by the Carnegie UK Trust, they've got it in the US as well, of course, says tougher regulation is needed, but it won't be enough on its own to restore trust and strengthen the supply of good journalism. The report, Better Journalism in the Digital Age, also says a new regulatory framework, that's new rules, regulations, and ours, for the press is needed, one that is independent of both government and the newspaper industry. The system should be voluntary, but with very strong incentives for joining you can interpret that whichever way you want. Only participating news outlets would obtain the benefits of press accreditation and recognition. So, in other words, if they don't uh, think you're 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 being uh, playing the game, playing ball, you know, playing ball with the boys, you see. If you're not playing ball with them, you won't get your cards and all the rest of it, and you won't get accreditation and recognition. Arrangements which give journalists privileged access and facilities at important places and, adv- and events. Well, they never tell us the truth at these events because they've all sworn not to. <laughs> like the CFR. 
and, and the Rockefeller meetings and the Bilderberger meetings. But the report stresses that stronger or smarter regulation is only one of a number of levers uh, needed to secure better journalism. The work of regulation is largely that of eliminating various forms of bad behavior, whereas the public interest also requires positive actions in support of good journalism. Tougher regulation on its own is not enough. Some of the recommendations include the maintenance or strengthening of public service broadcasting to ensure that not not all news ventures are commercially driven. Well, it's never been that way. You've always had a lot of propaganda on behalf of the government. Civil society organizations, so here's your non-governmental organizations, offering to help fund new initiatives to ensure greater quality and diversity of news sources. So if you're an accredited NGO group uh, funded by Rockefeller or whoever, whatever foundation, then you're okay. But if you're not funded by them and and accredited by them, then then you're a no-no. A renewed emphasis in journalism education and training on professional ethics, including a clear commitment to understanding and upholding the public interest. Meaning, you can reinterpret all of this to say upholding the public's uh, uh, dope, basically, or soma, because we really are kept in the dark at the bottom. We're supposed to be in the dark. Extending the availability and take-up of high-speed broadband to enable universal access to a wide range of digital news. This is the stuff they want you to get, the mainstream. Industry regulators, universities, civil society organizations, and the news media should encourage more public debate around media ethics and behavior. The report author Blair Jenkins, former head of news and content or current affairs at both BBC Scotland and STV, chair of the Scottish Broadcasting Commission and now a Carnegie Fellow, that uh, means he's a higher initiate now, says the public should have higher expectations of journalists and journalists should have higher expectations of themselves. It's based on trust, he says, and integrity, and that needs to be reflected in a new industry-wide code of conduct. It should be inspiring and authentic for all journalists, but also sufficiently clear and reassuring for the public who depend upon those journalists for reliable news and information. <laughs> Do you remember when they sent all the embedded journalists over by the army? Yeah. They, couldn't, they would never dare say anything negative whatsoever, and they didn't. It says, the independent regulatory system proposed for the press would strike a new balance. You only get the many benefits of being a serious news operation if you also live up to the obligations. If you want the accreditation that gets you special access to the big stories, you have to sign up to decent and reasonable standards. What's the big stories? Madonna or something? The report will be forwarded as a formal submission to the Levison Inquiry. They always have inquiries in Britain before they pass all the laws. They know what they're going to do before they have inquiry, but it's all judges that have retired. They pull out there for a few months and give them a few million pounds. You know. Carnegie Youth Trust Chief Executive Martin Evans says the future role of the media is a central part of the work of the trust. So it goes on and on and on about how they have to you know, regulate it and all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and yada, yeah. And play ball and you get your ticket. If you don't play ball and see the truth, um, then you'll be in trouble, obviously. Now, Zygmunt Brzezinski, who's a, a geostrategist in geopolitics, and who helped set off the, the whole uh, Muslim uh, Al-Qaeda idea uh, when, the, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, and I've, I've put the link up a few times, you see a, a younger Brzezinski t- radicalizing them, standing in front of the guys, 
in Afghanistan, telling them that there's this, there's this a holy war, a holy war, it's a cause, and they should fight the Russians. So, um, so he plays all sides, of course, because he plays geopolitics. It's like a chess game. You, you use one pawn, and then you you, you flatten it, and, and, and you know, or, or get rid of it altogether, and get another one in. They have no friends whatsoever. Believe you me. It says, uh, anyway, he's, he's, his just published book is Strategic Vision, America and the Crisis of Global Power. He's spoken on Friday with Global Viewpoint Network editor Nathan Gardles. It says, Nathan Gardles, the core of your strategic vision for the future is of a larger West comprised of democratic powers that accommodates China. Yet the West, starting with the U.S., is in a period of political decay, it says here. You wouldn't think it with the money we're spending, eh? Back with more on this after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix and talking about Brzezinski's latest book, and he's interviewed by Nathan Gardos, and this is a PR piece, of course, to sell the book. But anyway, it says, as you've noted, well, China's focus, China focuses on the long term and plots out its future. The U.S. in particular is beset with a short-term mentality. In effect, we're no longer an industrial democracy. Well, then he knew that because he was part of one of the guys who helped give all the industry to China. That was part of the things back then. In a strict sense, but a consumer democracy, how can you be a consumer democracy? Where all the feedback signals, the market, the media, and politics are short-term and geared to immediate gratification. Doesn't that give China the competitive advantage of political capacity in times ahead? And Brzezinski says, obviously so. Then Gardel says, how can America's short-term mentality be changed? Are the West political institutions up to the challenge? It says, yes, if we develop a more effective and longer-range response to the current crisis, instead of simply wallowing in the same present difficulties, which is likely to further produce the same negative effects that got us into this mess. We're so preoccupied with the current crisis and so lacking in a longer-term perspective that there was no strategic vision which would give us some sense of historical momentum. Democracy is capable of responding, providing we focus on the right aims. The question today is whether democracies can thrive with financial systems that are out of control, that are capable of generating selfishly beneficial consequences for only the few, without any effective framework that gives us a larger, more ambitious sense of purpose. That is the real problem. There is today a very dangerous imbalance between the lack of budgetary discipline, the commitment to austerity. See, he's part of this whole big thing. He helps cause the problems and writes books about the, how to get out of them, you know, which is all, all the way that geopoliticians always work. The determination to keep inflation under control and to maintain a costly social policy on the one hand, all on the other hand without any larger conception about which direction our societies as a whole should be heading. Gardel says the rest of the West is also mired in paralysis. Europe has turned even further inward with the Euro crisis as it decides whether to go all the way back to the nation state or forward to full political union. What is the solution for Europe? Brzezinski says, I believe that in the end the resolution to today's crisis in Europe won't work out that badly. It's mainly fluff we're hearing about the, oh, we'll pull out, we'll pull out and all that stuff. 
The central political leadership in Europe, the Germans and the French mainly, along with some others, are demonstrating a sense of responsibility for the future of Europe. They're increasingly determined to shape a political framework which will supplant what Europe has been lately, namely a financial union for some and a politically loose community for all. Inevitably, a genuine political union will take shape in stages and steps. That's through signing more agreements and, and further bringing you in. Probably beginning through a de facto treaty, there you go, reached by intergovernmental agreements in the near future. So a, two, a two-speed Europe. So they're, they're so clever. Some folk think you're already pulling out of it, but you're not at all. You're just going at a slower, you're in a lower gear, basically. Uh, it's just a, two, a two-speed Europe. America's doing the same thing, by the way, with Canada. He says, why not? He said, there's nothing wrong with a Europe that is in part and simultaneously a political and monetary union at the core, which accepts the leading role of Brussels, surrounded by a larger Europe that doesn't share the single currency, but does share all the other benefits. For example, the free movement of people and goods, that's all part of this worldwide free trade agreement. That is consistent with the post-Cold War vision of an expanding Europe whole and free. Now, part of the reason he's quite talking about there. Uh, isn't just the WTO. That was part of it getting set out, of course. But uh, at the end of World War II, because all the other countries were so much in debt, they borrowed heavily from the big uh, U.S. banks for their, for their wars in World War II, uh, that they brought out the Lend-Lease uh, Bill, basically. And what this did was they'd lend and lease things to other countries uh, on certain conditions, but they all had the same one condition for all European companies, is that that they would set up departments in all governments with the idea of uniting Europe together, initially through a free trade, but ultimately for total uh, amalgamation, for those who don't know the history of this. And, uh, and it was Eisenhower who, who pushed that forward. It says, Gardel's Japan, says, changes prime ministers every few months. It is coasting into a retirement trap based on the accumulated wealth of the past and not looking forward. Is it possible to keep such a Japan within the West or will it drift towards the Chinese center of gravity? Brzezinski says, I feel content with the authenticity of Japan's commitment to democracy. Its political culture is now more Western than its traditional political culture. Because they watch all American stuff, eh? But of course, Japan is in the East. A good relationship between it and China would contribute immensely to stability in the Far East and to a better U.S.-China relationship. What they want is, is for Japan and China, Australia and New Zealand and a bunch of other countries to unite into one bloc. That it, in fact, they're pretty well there, for those who don't know that. Australia is definitely in, and so is, is New Zealand. So America can play an active role. It's exactly what Karl Marx talked about, the three this big free trading blocs. Can play an active role as conciliator between Japan and China, as it did in Europe between France and Germany, and between Germany and Poland, but without the direct kind of military involvement on the Asian mainland that the U.S. has had in Europe. Perhaps a better analogy with respect to U.S. and China is the role Britain played in the 19th century as a stabilizer and balancer on the European continent. Well, you see, in the 19th century, they called, they, talk, they called it the balance of power. And what Britain would do if one country was rising up and getting a bit too big for its britches, as they say, or, or uh, contesting Britain, uh, then Britain would f- uh, finance and arm uh, the, a little country round about it, who would then go to war, Britain would back them, and then they'd defeat the bigger country. Once they'd, they'd done that, and the guys had just helped to, get to fight, you see, uh, they would then destabilize them and bring them down too. And <laughs> that's how you kept the balance of power. The balance means that you're always on top. And uh, I'll be back with some more of this after this break. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back in Cutting Through the Matrix and I'll put this link up and other links too at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the broadcast because you've got to read through this stuff. It's kind of boring, but the fact is the guy's telling you how it's going to be and he's up there, trilateral, CFR, uh, geopolitician who helps literally, uh, like the CIA do, they have wars planned years ahead, maybe, and not just one war. Uh, we'll, we'll take this one first and then five years later we'll go for that one and so on. That's how they work it in chessboard. So he's definitely a master for that. And um, this article here is on death on wheels. The Dutch now, I mentioned this a while back, but now they're actually doing it. Dutch to send mobile clinics to euthanize people in their own homes. There's socialism for you. The Dutch government is considering plans to use mobile medical teams which would administer euthanasia to the people in their homes. Um, this is a unit dubbed Grim Reapers on Wheels by critics will be called in to kill patients when their own GPs refuse to administer lethal drugs. So they come in to kill you. <laughs> and you can't get out. You're too, you're too bedridden. Eh? The mobile teams of doctors and nurses will be sent out from a clinic following a referral from the, pa- the patient's doctor. That's a hell of a power to give to quacks, you know. A hell of a power. What, what was the Hippocratic Oath? Do no harm, it says. The proposals were revealed by Dutch Health Minister Edith Schippers during a, a debate on euthanasia in the Dutch Parliament. In answers to questions from Christian Union MPs, she said that mobile units for patients who meet the criteria for euthanasia, but whose doctors are unwilling to carry it out, was worthy of consideration. If the patient thinks it's desirable, the doctor can refer him or her to a mobile team or clinic, the minister wrote. And the mobile units are being aggressively promoted by Dutch euthanasia campaign groups, who will all be funded by the big, the big foundations, who want to expand the eligibility criteria for euthanasia. You're a bit depressed today. Oh, here, here's a pill for you. You won't have to be depressed ever again. And also to open facilities specifically for euthanasia along the patterns of the Dignitas Center in Switzerland. So, have you ever seen the movie Soylent Green? Uh, or you haven't seen it? Go and see it. Because they put all this stuff out in their movies years ago to prepare us for all this stuff as predictive programming. So it says they claim that 80% of people with dementia or mental, or mental illnesses, right, were being missed by the country's euthanasia laws. You see where it's all going? I hope you do. Oh, this one's just got a bit of autism. This is all the stuff that Adolf Hitler did, you know. When the wipes out and pretty well everybody who is unfit in hospitals, etc. It says they're supported by the Dutch Medical Association, which this summer issued guidance effectively saying even people who complained of being lonely, being lonely in this day and age, right? Where everybody's sitting in a, you know, you really need a house that's only about six foot by six foot wide, that's it. Because all you need really is a computer there in a, in a chair. Everybody lives their life in a chair and a computer, that's it. So being lonely could qualify for euthanasia if it can st- uh, constitutes unbearable and lasting suffering. Well, who's going to determine what unbearable and lasting suffering is? Well, you know the authorities. So anyway, that's that's rampaging ahead. And at the, the next uh, Rio summit, they're already having their pre-meetings, they call them, uh, all the stuff that's going to be discussed or, or just signed into law, actually. It's more like the latter. That's what they always do. 
uh, they're going to, remember I mentioned they're going to go for, for your energy units and what it costs for this and costs for that. You have to pay it all yourself. Britain will urge businesses and governments to start accounting for natural capital, natural capital, right, as an additional way of measuring economic activity at a UN sustainability summit in June, as Environment Minister said Thursday. This could mean moving towards a concept of GDP plus or measuring the use or loss of natural resources like water, agriculture and forests to gauge economic activity in addition to relying solely on economic output. A snapshot of the state of economies based on GDP, uh, gross domestic product, is too narrow, Caroline Spellman told reporters after a speech of businesses and non-governmental organizations. That's all these private organizations that speak for you that you never ever hear of or, or don't know they exist. But so they've got bigger say than the, the whole voting population, as far as government's concerned. It's all prepared for the UK Rio Plus 20 summit. Green accounting could work well for all countries. We believe you can really drive a significant greening if you take proper account of the value of natural capital in your government accounts, she added. Uh, currently, governments compel national accounts to track the activity of their economies, and the data is used to calculate economies Indicators, economic indicators like GDP. Uh, there's also another guy actually coming out, another politician who's putting a bill through uh, for personal energy units. I told you years ago this would come down to personal energy units, and that's where it's supposed to go. It doesn't mention it in this article, of course, it's a different one. But anyway, it says if there were no uh, pollinators, creatures such as bees that enable flower fertilization, it would cost the UK economy £400 million. Uh, a year to substitute them, she added. So if you start losing bees, you're already pay for new ones getting brought in, even though they're all dying off with, with uh, GMO uh, crops or planting, if they need them. The UK government is setting up a committee that will report on the state of England's natural capital, and UK's Office of National Statistics is trying to embed natural capital in the country's environmental accounts by 2020, Spellman said. So now you've got a, another environmental account you've got to pay to, well, be the United Nations, of course. Where else? Mention, too, that the shyness and grieving are soon to be classified as mental illnesses. Uh, I read part of it before. This is an update. This is millions of healthy people, including shy or defiant children, grieving relatives, and people with fetishes may be wrongly labeled mentally ill by a new international diagnostic manual, specialists said on Thursday. In a damning analysis of an upcoming revision of the influential Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, psychologists, psychiatrists, and mental health experts says its new categories and tick boxes diagnosis system were at the best silly and worst worrying and dangerous. Some diagnoses for conditions like oppositional defiant disorder and apathy syndrome risk devaluing the seriousness of mental illness and medicalizing behaviors most people would consider normal or just mildly eccentric, the expert said. This is the other end of the spectrum. The new DSM due next year could give medical diagnosis for serial rapists and sex abusers under labels like paraphilic coercive disorder. That's what we call it now, paraphilic coercive disorder. See, the neuroscientists are getting in the job now, you see, and they want all this stuff to get added and added and added to. And may allow offenders to escape prison by providing what could be seen as an excuse for the behavior, they added. And that's true, they've already got murderers off. Well, I couldn't help you see this part of his frontal lobes. Yeah, it's like a psychopath. Couldn't help killing folk. The DSM is published by the American Psychiatric Association and has descriptions, symptoms, and other criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. 
as she was internationally seen as the diagnostic bible for mental health quacks. It says more than 11,000 health professionals have already signed a petition uh, calling for the development of the fifth edition of the manual to be halted and rethought because it's literally going to make a, 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 pretty well anything a, a mental illness. Do you disagree with government on anything? Well, it's your mental illness. The Soviets used this. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. The Soviets used all of this stuff. And they end up in a gulag somewhere. He said the new edition known as the DSM-5 will pathologize a wide range of problems which would never be thought of as mental illnesses. Many people are shy, bereaved, eccentric, or have unconventional romantic lives like all the politicians, will suddenly find themselves labelled as mentally ill, he said. It's not humane, it's not scientific, and it won't help decide what help a person needs. And it says, Simon West of the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London, said, look back at history, should make health experts ask themselves, do we need all these labels? He said the 1840 census of the US concluded included just one category for mental disorder. But by 1917, the APA was already recognizing 59, that rose to 128 in 1959, to 227 in 1980, and again around 350 disorders in the fastest revisions of the DSM in 1994 and 2000. So, they're radically and recklessly expanding the boundaries of psychiatry and result in the medicalization of normality, individual difference, and criminality. Well, you see, they don't, you got to fit in. There could be no individual difference in this society. They want us all to be mass-minded, remember. The UN has said that, that the individual is the biggest enemy to the peaceful world state. This is all Soviet stuff. The trial is in the Soviet Union. Thousands and millions even just disappeared. Never be seen again. With crazy uh, diagnosis. As an unintended consequence, he says, an emailed comment, many millions of people will get inappropriate diagnosis and treatments and already scarce funds would be wasted on giving drugs to people who don't need them and may be harmed by them. Remember, big pharma, I'm talking about psychiatry uh, uh, drugs, uh, they'd be a big, big part of this new world order. Every top writer that gave us a hint of what was coming always said that pharma would be involved to drug the public, the whole public, all of us. So I'll put that link up tonight as well. And uh, here's a little bit loneliness too. It might get you, might get you killed. But this is Britain's version of it. Loneliness is worse than smoking, says number 10 advisor David Halpern. Now this is about behavior modification. They have these big teams now in government for behavior modification. And this, here's how they're trying to con pensioners not to retire so that the government can snatch your pension. Then you die, hopefully, when you're working. This is the whole idea, getting your cash off you and without you claiming any. Being lonely in an old age will propel you to, to, to the grave more quickly than smoking, a senior Downing Street advisor said as part of an effort to encourage people to retire later. David Halpern, the director of Number 10, their behavioral insight team, as behavior modification, said not having someone with whom to share problems was one of the worst, the most significant lifestyle factors affecting mortality. Dubbed the nudge unit, that's like Sunstein again, the nudge unit, and they nudge you along into the, the way you're supposed to think and behave, right? Halpern's team was set up to develop ways to push people gently, just so you can push on the net where your nudge is there, into changing behavior, behavior modification. 
rather than more draconian government interventions like, like, you will slave till you drop. <laughs> Halpern was picked by Prime Minister David Cameron as one of six experts joining him at a summit of Nordic and Baltic states where one topic was how to ensure more workers delayed their retirement. He told other leaders and experts that a majority of the UK's over 75 considered themselves lonely all or most of the time. Uh, work matters. Well, they can always give you a pill now. You know, they'll have vans that come across your, your street soon if you say you're lonely. Are you lonely, sir? Your number so-and-so. Your name is so-and-so. Oh, that's right. And, uh, you know, they, they just whisk you in the van and euthanize you in the spot, grab your organs and sell them. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, don't you? And um, now there's, there's some callers in the line. I'm going to try to fit them in here. So I'm going to just pull this up very quickly. And at satellite speed, that is. And see who's there. There's Jim from New York, who I think phoned to their day, perhaps. Are you there, Jim? Hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, yes, I live here in uh, upstate New York, and there's uh, some National Guard centers or military centers that they've had, like, 50 armored Humvees that they just built this center and, like, other military vehicles. Yeah. Now, I know with the militarization and everything, when do you think there's going to be really uh, hardcore rioting or uh, real martial law, police state type things going on here in the States? Partly, I think they're doing it incrementally and getting everyone used to it. They have been for quite a few years. They can either keep doing it this way until you're used to seeing them in the streets even, or it'll come when they cause another crash, financial crash, or when Obamacare comes out. Now, Obamacare probably won't come out until he's re-elected. You know, they have them slated for a second term here. So, um, but the, the stuff you read about my care is going to be slashing to the core, the bone, uh, the complete he- um, healthcare system, and that that's good. and it's going to slash to welfare, big time. And and so uh, whenever the, the folk uh, can't keep up, uh, as the welfare is cut back, as prices go up, everything is going up in the, in the food stores, has been for years now, very fast, because the Federal Reserve says they're using a 10-year plan for for inflation, gradually inflating uh, uh, the, the dollar, which means that you, your purchasing power is less and less, it buys less. So uh, it all depends uh, if, if they do that in one big burst or, or just spread over a few years. But I think that's when it will happen. Those at the bottom will riot first, because just like Britain, because uh, you, you, the, your basics, just your basics to live, are getting getting out of your reach now. I mean, there's people f- freezing in Britain, as we speak, who are on pensions and so on because they can't afford the, 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 the fuel. They have houses, but they can't afford fuel. And we accept this every year now, 25,000, 30,000, 40,000. It doesn't matter. We're getting taught to, to accept this as normal. America still has to go through this phase. And it's going to get pushed through it now. Yeah. And from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.